Hi, I'm Ken Sweeney. This is The Comfortable Spot. Welcome. Today, I'm joined by academic and author Professor Jenny Batchelor. Jenny has written and edited several books on women's writing, 18th century dress and early women's magazines. So I thought Jenny would be a wonderful guest to discover more about how women were perceived in the 18th century media and fashion. So I hope you're sitting comfortably and happy to stay with us. Hi Jenny, how are you? Thanks for joining me on The Comfortable Spot. Hi, it's really nice to be here. Thanks so much. Mm, and uh, I've been following you online and I've been looking through some of your podcasts and uh, some of your appearances on podcasts. And this whole topic that we're going to, well, we're discussing a number of topics today, but our theme is going to be really 18th century studies and women. And it's been something that I've been interested in for a while. Uh, and, you know, it's amazing because when you follow stuff like um, the History Channel or you see some of the more American-based history programs, they don't cover anything like this. And it's hard to get conversations started in the media on this. So it's great to have you today. Thank you. Yeah, I, it's it's an endless frustration to me. I think any if you dip a toe into this period, if you dip a toe into the kind of stuff we're going to be talking about, I don't know how you can resist it, really. <laughs> Just don't. Yeah, and the thing is, it's still so relevant to the, to us nowadays. There's, it's like the basis of our society was really created around that time, and especially when it comes to style and fashion and also the media. Yeah, the thing is, that the 18th century is a period of huge contradictions. There's all sorts of stuff that's changing really, really rapidly, and it's as if the culture's trying to keep up with all the different changes that are happening in the media and knowledge about the world and travel and commerce and consumerism. Um, and there's all sorts of things about the period that, you know, from a modern perspective, are pretty unpalatable or downright just wrong, you know, about colonialism and empire. But at the same time, there is this there's this sense of a new world that's beginning and is setting in motion. And it looks really very modern to um, to us now, actually. I mean, you know, I often say to, to people when I'm talking about the 18th century that, you know, most of most of the things that you think about and appreciate about life today have their origins in the 18th century. You know, whether it's kind of fashion systems we have, even if, goodness, if it's ice cream, you know, it all mm. comes from the 18th century, right? Yeah, it's the basis of consumerism in many ways, isn't it? There, there was such rapid shifts in terms of how society was changing, in terms of um, how wealth was distributed. I mean, in general, more people had more access to more things is generally what starts to happen in the 18th century. And of course, that completely changes the landscape in so many different ways for, for so many different people up and down the country. And indeed, you know, in, in other countries um, around Europe and um, America and, and, and so on. And I also think um, we're going to touch on some of the subjects today. The development of Western influences in terms of consumerism and pop culture and all that kind of thing. This is really where it started, wasn't it? And England particularly. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thinking, I mean, talking about pop culture specifically and thinking about, you know, the birth of what we would now call celebrity culture. They didn't have the same terminology then. But I mean, yeah, it all starts. And that's partly because, as you were saying earlier, about the rise of the media, you know, information has to travel in order for it to be influential. And one of the ways it travels now as then 
is, 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 is through new media. And the new media of the 18th century is things like newspapers, it's magazines, it's periodicals, it's images, and which get circulated in print and in shop windows and so forth. And, and this really does make the world seem both a bigger and a smaller place. It means ideas and styles and um, different kinds of arguments, different kind of cultural influences and vibes can, can travel in, in really unprecedented ways. And, and with very much within Britain, but also through Britain as, a, as an imperial force it in the world at that time through through the colonies and, and through its empire so you know i mean i was just reading some stuff the other day about about uh, women's magazines being read in tasmania you know like in <laughs> 1799 and thinking how quickly did this this particular copy of the magazine travel all that distance but you know travel it did yeah and i'm just curious about how all this happened for you because it's quite a particular topic so what got you interested how did you get started as a young person were you always interested in this or was it something that like in many cases you just stumbled into well it's a bit of a combination of both really so i mean i grew up in a in a family where i mean neither of my parents went to university but my but they both my parents loved reading and both really loved history, as did my grandparents. So my sister and I sort of grew up in a house that was kind of, I mean, literally propped up with books, it felt like. It felt like <laughs> there weren't walls, there were just like books everywhere. So I read lots. Um, and the other thing I've always been fascinated by, and again, I get this from my mom really, but is films. And uh, initially when I was a kid, I think my interest in books and history came first through film. And so I remember when I was about, I guess I would have been nine, um, I watched um, the black and white MGM Pride and Prejudice with Laurence Olivier in and Greer Garson. And oh my goodness, it just, I mean, I didn't know when I first watched it that, you know, the frocks are all wrong <laughs> and, you know, Lizzie Bennett doesn't do archery really. And there's all sorts of things that are kind of just a bit off about it. But I, I just fell in love with this story and the wit and the humour. And I just remember saying to my mom, I've got to read this book. And she said, well, it might be a bit tough for you, but, you know, uh, sure enough on my 10th birthday I got the complete works of Jane Austen wow <laughs> I read that fell in love with Jane Austen although it was a bit difficult for me at the time um, and then I kind of you know but like you were saying you know there's not much um, even now you know there are still huge gaps in people's knowledge at school for instance about the 18th century it's not much taught still I wasn't taught much about it at school but when I went to university to do English um, I did get an opportunity to do so and I just became fascinated by you know what came before Jane Austen and particularly um, the women in, in this society, the women who were writers, the women who were running shops and pubs and, and doing all, uh, who were seamstresses and dressmakers and all sorts of other, other spheres of life at the time. And so that's really what it started for me. And then particularly my work I've been doing recently on women's magazines came from I kept, I, I just, once I, once I got my claws on the 18th century, I just kind of dug in. Um, and when I was doing my, um, when I did a PhD eventually in, in London, um, I was going to write just a tiny little bit in one of the chapters of the of the work I was doing about about periodicals and new media. Um, and I and I happened across this magazine, which at the time I didn't know very much about, called the Ladies Magazine. I thought mm -hmm. I'd spend about a couple of weeks on it. Three months later, here I'm you still are. <laughs> and that's I'm still reading it. <laughs> you know, this is incredible. I mean, when I when I came across this as well via your website and started to read about the ladies' magazine, I was fascinated by it. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that because I'm really sure there's a lot of people out there who don't know about this, but would be very interested to find out more. So hopefully we can get them involved in this today. Can you tell us a little bit about the ladies' magazine, the origins of it, and how it came about? Because the, when you took a look at the time period, it seems an impossible feat, but I'm sure there's more to it than that. 
Yeah, no, sure. So it's so it's a, a monthly magazine for women, and it starts in 1770. And six decades later, it's still running. And that is no mean achievement at that time. I mean, it's no mean achievement now, good Lord, but it's yeah. no mean achievement then because, um, well, periodicals started in sort of print form actually a lot earlier than you might think, sort of at the end of the 17th century. And there's a lot of them um, because they can be relatively cheap to produce. They don't have to be very long. Um, and so th there are quite a few of them. This makes anything that survives really quite remarkable because there's lots of things that appear and then disappear, you know, a month later, three months later, a year later, whatever. So anything that endures is, is really quite, uh, it's really quite um, impressive. But in terms of how this particular magazine came along, well, really early on, I think, people who were making periodicals started to realise that women were just a really important demographic for them. And if you ignored women, you were missing a trick commercially, right? Because they, 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 there was an appetite um, for amongst women readers to get really involved in in this content. But the, then there was a question of, okay, but so what? Do, what would women want to read in a periodical? Well, women always did, really. I mean, from when periodicals started, they they were always, you know, reading things that were out there. So periodicals like um, the Tatler and Spectator, no, they were reading that. They were they women's issues if you if you like problematic term though that is were being discussed so there are essays on fashion and so forth in there but if you fast forward a few years in the 1730s a new a new um element comes along with periodicals there's a guy called edward cave who's a journalist and who'd been um writing for different newspapers and he has this idea that he's going to start a new kind of periodical and he's going to call it a magazine so that's when the term magazine starts it's in the 1730s and he wants to do something which is a, a bit like a newspaper, but not so not completely politically driven or news driven. Um, and he's a newspaper man, so he's got lots of contacts. He's got lots of ways of getting in touch with people. And he wants it to be a great kind of. He, he's thinking about the term magazine as like a sort of an arsenal of of stuff, you know, oh, of okay. weaponry, yeah. bits and pieces you can get, and you can store things up and you can ransack it for future use. He says. So anyway, he, he starts this magazine, which he calls The Gentleman's Magazine, and it has politics and it has poetry and news and essays on all sorts of different things. Anyway, a, a, a few people come along after and think, haha, we need to, we, we're missing a trick here. Let's, let's think about what a magazine for women would look like. And the ladies' magazine, which turns up four decades after the gentleman's magazine, is really the first successful attempt to find that right formula that really captures women's imagination, which is why it runs for such a such a long time. So, as I say, it gets set up in 1770, and it almost immediately it becomes a huge hit um, in the sense that. So, to give you some idea of its scale, it's it's really hard to know exactly how many copies were circulated because records aren't great. Um, and the thing with magazines is, you know, now like then, you know, one copy can be read by you know five, five six ten people, yeah. people or whatever, mm. you know, and they get passed down through families and whatnot. But we think um, there was a it, that it had a circulation of about fifteen to sixteen thousand copies a month. Um, which would be lower than its number of readers. And this is at a time when, you know, novels, uh, a sort of standard print run of a novel, like, I don't know, Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen, for instance, is 750 copies. So if you want to think, okay, what what were people reading in, in this period, you know, as, as a uh, sort of en masse, you want to look at magazines and newspapers. You don't 
really want to go to those novels that I love and I love teaching and I love reading, but you really want to go to the magazines and the newspapers because that's mass media. It's the new mass media. And in terms of the magazine itself, what was the content like? I mean, was there a lot of content created by women or was it at this time what maybe was the case was that men were basically thinking what women should read? Ah, well, it's a, it's a it's a it's a fabulous combination of both of those things, really. Right. So the magazine has two, broadly speaking, two different kinds of content. In the so some of it is is basically pinched from other places. Okay. It's a kind of Huffington Post, right? About <laughs> yeah. the ladies' magazine. So, um, so they, they take a lot of stuff. I mean, this works well for other publishers because if you take an ex- an extract from something from another publisher and people read it and like it, then you know they might go away and read the whole thing. So there's a lot of re- re- repurposing, recycling of content that's already out there. But there's a whole bunch, a huge significant uh, part of the magazine is original to it. So it's written by the people who read the magazine. Um, so it has this sort of army of thousands of reader contributors who write in in pretty much any kind of genre you can think of um so for it i mean i couldn't give you a kind of exhaustive contents list but it has everything from fiction some not serialized novels and short fiction short stories it has stuff on news it has stuff on fashion it has um, essays on every subject you can imagine history politics geography travel writing trial reports i mean you name it it's 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 there anything you can think of um, and in terms of how much of it's, it, it was of it was produced by women, that's kind of hard to say precisely. And the reason why is because um, almost everything in the magazine is published under a kind of pseudonym, which is not um, unusual at the time. So a bit like when the internet started. Yeah. Um, you know, news, newspapers and magazines, the, the contributions that are sent in are usually written under pseudonyms, whether it's by a man or by a woman. And it, it means sometimes you just don't know. There's clearly a lot of playing about with it. Um, and there are clearly there are clearly some male contributors who are writing in horribly misogynist things <laughs> under female pseudonyms, yeah. which women readers then take great exception to and write <laughs> lots and lots of very spirited responses to. Um, and similarly, there are women who masquerade as men, and there are some who you just you just have no idea, basically. But having done a lot of work on the magazine and a lot of work identifying um, some of the writers for the magazine, we know that lots of women did write for it and 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 read it. We also know men read it, and we also know some men wrote for it. Um, so the idea of it as a kind of women's magazine is is it's 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 slight. I mean, it, it was marketed towards women. It said it was for women, but it had a much broader appeal. Okay, and I'm curious to know. Um, obviously, you can by looking back through the archives of the magazine that you have, it might be difficult to tell. But was there any element of feminism in the magazine at all? Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. So they, I mean, its mission really was. I mean, the magazine wanted to entertain, but mm-hmm. it also wanted to improve and educate its readers in lots of ways. And one of its biggest, um, one of its biggest concerns was that at the time women had. Well, very few women had any kind of formal education in the way that their, you know, their brothers, their fathers, their uncles would have had. Um, and so it sort of presented itself as a kind of proxy education for women. It was a kind of stand-in for, for that. And it wanted women, to, and it, it, one of its um, main arguments, I guess, it's a claim that it repeats many, many times, is that women are intellectually men's equals. What they lack is the opportunity to develop and exercise their intelligence. So the magazine is constantly sort of forwarding this argument for women's education 
and for women to have opportunities to um, to become the kind of citizens that their their sons, their brothers, their fathers would be. So yeah, absolutely. And there are feminist writers of the period, like Mary Wollstonecraft, who some people listening to this might have heard of, is often branded one of the first sort of modern feminists. She was a great friend, actually, of the publisher of the magazine, um, uh, George Robinson. And so Mary Wollstonecraft, when she writes Vindication of the Rights of Woman, which is considered one of the most sort of important early feminist works, that that has excerpts from that appear in the ladies magazine, for instance. So, yeah, I mean, it's not it's not not everything in it is progressive in that way. Not everything is, is radical or feminist. As I say, there's some really disturbingly misogynist stuff. In yeah, there. yeah. But normally when that's there, actually, the editors will put in a little note at the bottom saying, you know, we really we, we know that our readers will um, take exception to the monstrous freedoms of this article. So please write in and tell us what you think about it. And, they, and you know, the readers did. It's wonderful. <laughs> so it had a kind of a democracy feel to it and that, it, you know, people who read it also had a say in some of the magazine's ways of doing things. Yeah. And to be honest, I think that's I, I've come to the conclusion that's one of the main reasons why it is such a huge success and mm. why it lasts for so long, because there's this real sense of um, real sense of community, you know, that comes up around the magazine, like, as you say, that the people who write for it have a real stake in it, you know, that it's partly theirs, it's part they've written it. And, you know, that we have some examples of people who, who people who start to correspond with each other within the magazine and then meet each other in real life, for instance. And so th there is this sort of um, there is this sort of social media kind of feel about it, even though it's way back in the 18th century, this way that you can you can you can feel um, you can develop friendships with people that you've never actually met in real life. Yeah, <laughs> sounds sounds exactly magazine. like today. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Obviously, it had its rivals, I'm presuming. Um, there was probably magazines that were popping up left, right and centre trying to compete with it once they realised that there was a market there. Yeah, sure. And and some of the rivalries are really quite extraordinary. I mean, the, the, the one of the things that I love about the ladies magazine is that it manages to pretty much fend all of them away and push them all back. There's there's a, the one of the one of the most troubling ones for the publishers is that um, there's uh, so the magazine's published out of Paternoster Row, which was this fabulously vibrant um, centre for book publishing and particularly magazine publishing in the 18th century. Um, and so the magazine is being published out of 25 Paternoster Row. And just a few doors down the road, there's a there's a publisher called Alexander Hogg who made a living out of essentially pirating other people's publications. Mm. Right. <laughs> um, and he decides he's just one day, he just decides he's going to launch a magazine and he's going to call it the New Ladies Magazine. Okay. Except there's, not, except there's not very much new about it at all. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's some new stuff in it, but a lot of it is just basically recycled from the ladies magazine and printed in the wrong order um and when the publisher george robinson who i think we've even got a portrait of, of what he actually looked like but we've got lots of descriptions apparently he was back he was over six foot tall he was quite quite stocky and he was so furious he went into apparently went into all the bookshops down the row and and just every time he saw a copy of this new ladies magazine he'd like knock it off the sure shelf in the bin <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who knows? What? And they, literally, these guys were neighbours and they were having this feud which lasted over a decade. It was extraordinary. Um, and then later on, there are um, more genteel, um, less combative kind of um, uh, magazines. So there's there's one that's called the Ladies' Monthly Museum, which is a very decorous title. And there's another called La Belle Assemble. And the reason I mention those two is because eventually what happens is that... Um, they kind of they compete so vigorously with one another that in the end they kind of have to join forces. So in in the eighteen thirties they put all three groups together and they have this 
possibly long and complicated title but the three the three magazines come together in the end because they just it's just they they just sort of seem to kind of get fed up of trying to poach each other's readers and of course that that's not uncommon even in today's modern era i mean i remember I would follow but get comics as a child and then suddenly one week they'd announce that one comic's merging with another comic and eventually yeah. it'd go back to one comic and that was the whole idea it was a polite way of getting rid of somebody so it's not it's not uncommon so of all the magazines that were around we're specifically talking about women's magazines did any survive that are still even up to modern times or maybe today no, I don't, they didn't survive in the sense that there's sort of a, a, a continuous line up until today. I mean, some people, when I talk about the ladies' magazine, some people assume that it's connected to the lady, which of course still runs. But in fact, that's a that's a, a, a late Victorian publication which still exists today, and, and it's not much like um, the ladies' magazine at all. Um, but no, I mean, what they what they did though was that they they spawned new generations of magazines. So you can see the legacy of the ladies' magazine, for instance, in things like you know the English Women's Domestic magazine which is a really hugely popular Victorian women's magazine that Mrs Beaton was involved in and then that gives rise to some of the late Victorian magazines and then you know and then we come into this century with you know your Women's Weekly they're all part of a they're all part of a history they're all indebted to one another Um, and, and magazine editors in the 18th and 19th centuries were very aware of their own histories you know they they knew they knew what else was out there they knew what they knew what had come before they looked to them for examples and tried to work out how to be different but how also to you know capitalize on what they knew worked in the past so in a sense they've lived on but not under the same names and how did the actual magazine itself demise what was the demise of the magazine well it's well it was i think it's it, again it's it just kind of it just sort of stops eventually but um it it has so what happens in the 1830s is that it's in one fa- one publishing house's family george robinson and then his son and then his two grandsons for about 60 years um, and then it falls out of that family's hands and uh, that seems to be because uh, there was ill health and a bankruptcy in the grandsons um, which meant they didn't continue publishing it. So it goes to another publisher, and um, he then is the person who's behind the three magazines I talk, mentioned a moment ago, kind of joining together. Um, and then that publication kind of goes on until the 1840s, about 1847, and then it sort of it just sort of dies a death eventually, but quite quietly. It's not like there's a big fanfare about it. But the magazine is still being still being read and remembered, even though it's not being published, which is which is kind of. Um, another mark of its success I guess so in the very year it stops which is uh, 1847 um, in that version of it you know you've still got people like um, well, Charlotte Bronte for instance who, who read the ladies magazine is still talking about it you know she mentions it in her novel Shirley she writes about the ladies magazine in letters and things so the magazine still lives on um, but it's sort of it seems it seems a bit past it I think and I guess the other thing is that by that point you know pro- professional journalism is now recognized um as a profession um and so this sort of notion of well you know your magazine might partly be might partly be written by the people who read it seems a bit antiquated in, a, in an age of professional journalism but it's interesting to think about that in relation to now when you know um we're all writing blogs we're all putting ourselves out there we're all writing things and then you know and yet there are professional journalists you know we all have an opinion on social media and then there are journalists who 
have other ways of expressing their opinions, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know? So it's it's an interesting kind of parallel, I think. Really. And the last question I'd have on it, as a ter- in terms of, say, an archive for that period of history, is it a good archive? Does it give I you a good idea of society and culture? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's, that, that's one of the things that when I first encountered it, I found so so seductive about it really because i can't think of a single thing off the top of my head i can't think of a single thing that i know about that happened in that long period in which it was published that isn't in some way documented in the magazine you know not necessarily all the news stories but you know if you want to know about cook's voyages well they're serialized in the magazine you want to know about when the north pole is explored it's in the magazine you want to know about riots and the london streets in the 1780s it's in the magazine you know so yeah, Madness of King George, it's in the magazine, you know, so so a- anything and everything that happens is there. So, yeah, I think it's a fantastic, I think it's a fantastic archive. So, is it anywhere accessible? Can anybody go online or maybe look at excerpts of it? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it's not, the whole run is not freely accessible. There are, there are, there are bits and pieces that are, there is a, there is a full digital run, which is behind a paywall, which is, is, is a bit frustrating because it's not totally open access. However, there are lots and lots of copies that are, so... If you go onto some of the wonderful open access websites we have now, like Internet Archive or the Hathi Trust, um, they which digitizes some copies in American collections like the New York Public Library and the University of Chicago Library, you'll get a good chunk of about 25, 30 years worth of the magazine, which would give people a fantastic um, flavor of it. And you can keyword search them, so if there's particular things you want to look for, then... Um, I just want to move on to something quite similar, because obviously this would have been the bulk um, content in terms of the magazine for at some periods throughout the time and that's the fashion of the time because I'm again fascinated by this and not not because I like to wear the clothes myself but it's just <laughs> um, it's just a, it's a whole thing about that period of time where we seem to step as a culture you know as a European culture from you know kind of raggedy old clothing into really taking um, you know care of our appearance both men and women and I'm wondering about the fashion of the time um this is something that I noticed recently and I think we were, I was watching him, uh, that Enola Holmes film and there was a scene in it where they were talking about fans and about fans being a sense of communication and I'm just wondering is fashion at that time I mean for women in particular well, let's talk about women really um, did they use fashion as in terms of communication and in terms of making a statement and again was did they have much control themselves over that in terms of how they wore their clothing? Yeah, yeah, I know, I know the exact what you mean in the Enola Holmes film as well. And yes, that that is based on a true, um, uh, on a real life phenomenon. There was a whole, there was a, <laughs> there was a, a, a document that was written, which was called the language of the fan. And supposedly, if you held it in different positions, you were Amazing. saying yeah. different things. But of course, the you know the funny thing about that is the minute you tell people how they can how they can do how they can communicate in certain ways, then it's open to abuse, and you can, you can <laughs> use it to do whatever you like, really. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, fa- I mean, yeah, absolutely. Fashion, fashion always talks and it always speaks. It sometimes says things you don't want it to about yourselves. And 18th century women were just as aware of that as as we are today. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you, the fashion change again, like everything in the 18th century, changes pretty rapidly in this period. Um, and I guess magazines are one of the reasons why it can, because they're coming out very regularly, so they can inform people very quickly about things that are changing um, in terms of uh, in terms of fashions in the court or elsewhere. So yeah, things are changing pretty rapidly, and women are very conscious of, that their appearance that, that they will be judged by their appearance. That's v- they're very very conscious of that. Um, so dressing appropriately and. Appropriate means lots of different 
things it means like appropriate to your station in life so you know if you if you are a lady you're aristocratic you have to you have to look like a lady if you're working in a shop you have to be dressed as if you're working in a shop you know so it has to be according to your status but it also has to be dressed appropriately in, in a kind of moral sense which means it needs to be neat it needs to be clean it needs to be it needs it needs to be and it needs to be on needs to be in fa in fashion which doesn't necessarily mean high fashion but it needs you know you need to be dressing as other people are the the stage at the time is full of jokes at uh, uh, you know at the expense of women who are dressed you know three years out of date or or wow. or, or older women who yeah. are dressed in a particular way where that, that really is much more suitable to younger women you know and that sort of that 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 idea of being dressed you know uh, being dressed as if as if you're 30 years younger than you are that's a huge that's a huge um but for jokes on the 18th century stage for instance so yeah there's lots of pressure on women to 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 dress in ways that will be will be judged as being appropriate for whatever age station or whatever they they're in in life um and in terms of their own kind of agency in terms of fashion well yeah i mean again partly because of this sort of consumer revolution that's happening um, I mean, a high fashion is inaccessible to most people, just like you know it is today. I can I can look at the pages of Vogue. I'm never going to be able to buy anything that's no. in any pages from it. Um, and you know that so that was still happening at the time. But nonetheless, there are changes happening that mean that fashionable clothing is more accessible to more people because ready to wear clothing is starting to become a thing by the end of the 18th century. So not everything has to be made to measure. You know, you can actually. There are you're starting to be able to just go in and, and buy stuff kind of off the off the peg. And was this the was this the the period where department stores began to come into this, where they'd have a line of clothing that you could buy different sizes of the same dress? By the well, by the by the Victorian. So by the end of when the magazine's running, by the sort of the, in the middle of the nineteenth century, yeah, that is when you'll get it. You you are getting that definitely. Um, but there are the mo but in the, it's a little bit earlier. There are shops where you can go and you can. There's there's more there's more material that you can buy in a more finished state. The other thing you can do is you can is you can also um, make things yourselves. And women in this period, particularly sort of middle middle class kind of women, were so well equipped often to alter out of necessity as much as anything else to recycle clothing so they could sort of what we would think of as almost upcycling something so that you can you know it, it was in fashion last year but it's not this year and i'm going to turn this petticoat inside out and i'm going to adapt it like this and um so there's that kind of thing that you can do you can with caps and bonnets and things you well that's last year's trimmings rip them off put some new ones on there's all sorts of ways you can fashion yourself there's all sorts of ways in which you you know you can develop your own kind of um well sense of style really i think but yeah there's huge changes afoot and the other thing the major thing really for women is that clothing becomes much less um it, it, it becomes a much uh easier silhouette if you like in this period so you go from these sort of really exaggerated um, kind of heavily corseted, big panniered gowns to something much, a much more sort of natural silhouette. Things then sort of go a bit the other way in the Victorian period. But there's this wonderful moment where it just looks like it would have been more comfortable to be a woman than it would have been before and it would have been after. Okay, and, and was that like in terms of, say, when you say more comfortable, I mean, we have this image, of course, that, you know, you, you know the girl behind 
pulling the strings as tight as you possibly can and getting that kind of you get that kind of uncomfortableness feel when you see the outfits but were were these outfits in terms of say how they were designed were were the, was there mainly men involved in the design of the actual now when we say design right let's talk about these they, they kind of have these not names but kind of this is one type of dress and this is another type of dress if you know what i mean because this seemed to be the way were they designed by men or women and if they were who were the movers and shakers so to speak the jean-paul gaultiers of that time <laughs> Yeah, well, that's a great question. I mean, so a lot of fashion, a lot of fashion does seem to come from um, male designers. And there are certainly a lot of men, particularly earlier in the 18th century, there's a lot of men who work in the dressmaking trades who make stays, for instance, which is like the corsets of the, of the 18th century, these things of leather and whalebone and, you know, because these hard materials, so men have to make them. Um, so there's a lot of men involved in that, but as the century progresses, things change a lot. And there's a lot of concern, a lot of men involved in the dressmaking trades get really quite cross that women are coming in and, and, and stepping into their turf and they're, they're getting involved in terms of making clothes and, um, redesigning things. So it's again, another period of change, right? In the magazine, we can sort of track that a little bit because one of the things the magazine does is it starts in the just around just after 1800 it starts to name some of the designers of the particular fashions that it shows in its monthly fashion plates it's these lovely hand-colored engravings which are just gorgeous uh, of the of, of the clothing that people were wearing so you get people who unfortunately we don't know very much about although i've been trying to find out a little bit more about them in in recent months and i've, I've I'm amassing some information about them. It's really, uh, which I'm, I'm hoping I can get a little bit more on them. But you get people like um, Mrs. Bell, for instance, who also happened to be the daughter-in-law of another magazine publisher at the time, um, and she, she was a, she was a, she made a, a particular kind of corsets, which were very, very popular. Um, not least because one of them was taken on by a pregnant princess in the royal household, so it became known as the royal corset um and um so she was she was she was very well known for her corsets but she also designed various dresses they often referred to these women as inventresses oh, that's a brilliant <laughs> name yeah. somebody, the should, somebody the Armenian should, corset. yeah somebody should steal that name inventresses that's i must tell my daughter that and she can steal it and re, re regurgitate it back into a modern society yeah. i know it's a great word um so yeah there are lots of n- named women with with uh, and when they're named they're always named with their address because that's where you go to find them it's their shop and 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 they're sort of where where you would be able to go to get the same thing made or something you know bespoke for yourself um so yeah there are more and more women who are who are getting involved in this and getting involved in 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 fashion design and the rise of the name designer is very much a kind of late 18th early 19th century phenomenon really and we're talking about these names but of course you know throughout the period that we're discussing there was always the talk of fashion from paris or milan or so on um did the uk uh, did it have its own fashion center i mean was was there a lot of creativity happening there yeah yeah it was i mean and you're right i mean if you look at um again if you look at a lot of the periodicals and, and and the media that's circulating images of fashion for a long time it's paris it's all paris 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 the tra- but at the same time, of course, for almost mo- most of the 18th century and, and, and big chunks of the 19th, Britain is at war. With exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this is a huge problem. So, I mean, initially, again, going back to the, the Ladies Magazine, which is a, a good window on this, when it first starts, it starts with fashion plates um, around 1800. It has Paris fashion and London fashion. 
It has the two kind of literally side by side in the magazine. And then when things go a bit beyond the pale with France, Paris just gets dropped completely and you just get the London fashions. So London really is is the fashion centre in Britain in terms of um, those sort of inventresses that I was talking about. But of course, there are also lots of fashionable uh, resorts in Britain at the time. So places like Bath, for instance, where, you know, the anyone who's anyone goes at certain times of the year to to enjoy life these become places where where fashion gossip and news kind of gets spread where you go to be seen as much as to see things and see other people as well so fashion metropolitan lots of metropolitan centers around the country and even burgeoning seaside resorts become places where fashion emerges and the court is really important as well so um you know the the the, the royal household and the big court events like the king and queen's birthday are big celebrations each year and all the newspapers have very detailed reports of what everybody is every man and woman is wearing to these events so all of this all of this stuff gets documented and and through newspapers through magazines and, and images it can get circulated around but yeah paris paris has a, has a huge hold on on the sort of fashion imagination in this period in britain but um but as i say you know but london is always fighting back <laughs> not least because you know, it's France for a woman. <laughs> <laughs> the question also that came to mind there when you were talking about was, uh, did the church have any influence on women's fashion at all? Because, I mean, you know, you kind of associate Catholicism, for example, with modesty and, you know, this kind of cover yourself up and all that kind of thing. But I'm just wondering how that went down in the UK. Was there any any element of influence by the church at all? Or did they just say it's not their problem? Well, I mean, there's a lot. So where you find it most, I think, is there's a lot. There are a number of um, books that get published in the period, which are, which we tend to lump together in one kind of uh, genre and call them conduct books. So they're kind of they're, the etiquette manuals, not kind of an exact parallel, but they're kind of books to good living, if you like. And good they're living. always designed for young women. <laughs> yeah, and of course. Of, and, and one of the most popular of these is actually written by a a. a, a, a by a, by a reverend, the Reverend James Fordyce. So, the, and a number of you often find when you read these comic books, they're often given by Reverend so and so to this young person in this area. You can see the inscription. Um, and Fordyce's sermons to young women, which some people might have heard of, only because it's a book that Mr. Collins takes off the shelf and is going to read to Lydia Bennett in Pride and Prejudice, and Lydia's right. having none of it. She's going to <laughs> yeah, put yeah. that back. Put that back. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but that's a book which is, is all structured around, you know, how women need to be modest and, you know, because St. Paul says so, you know, women should be dressed in shamefacedness and sobriety and, you know, but it, there's no evidence <laughs> that that kind of um, rhetoric really had much of a kind of sway, I don't think, on, on how, how fashions were, were um, was sort of experienced by women, other than, you know, knowing that you needed to, you know, it was, it, it was sensible to dress appropriately. <laughs> yeah. Is there many examples of dresses still around? I mean, can you actually see firsthand what they were like rather than recreations? Because obviously anybody can do a recreation. I mean, there's loads of places you can go to look for this, both online and in, in, in real life, as it were. So um, in the UK, where I'm based, the V&A, uh, the Victorian Art Museum is a fantastic place you, where you can see everything from like there's one particular paneared dress from earlier in the 18th century where whoever wore it could not have walked through any doorway unless they were going in absolutely <laughs> sideways um, but you also get the wonderful sort of more streamlined regency dresses as well bath has a wonderful fashion museum as well um, and that's very much worth a look if anyone's ever in that area but i would really encourage people to look at the victorian Albert museum website um, colonial williamsburg in the us has a fantastic online um, uh, collection 
as does uh, LACMA, the Los Angeles Museum, which also has a lot of this stuff digitized. So yeah, it's it's not the same as seeing it in the flesh, um, but nonetheless, you know, you, you get you get you get a really good flavor for the fabrics, for the styles of this period. So quite a bit of it has survived. Thank goodness. Sometimes because it's been adapted later into Victorian costumes, it's not quite the same. But nevertheless, we can still see this stuff. Which is and great. I think it's probably the you know the early going back as early as possible where you get good quality clothing that's still around because obviously clothing you know deteriorates on its own, and yeah. it, it's probably harder to have original clothing from periods before that. Um, yeah. Jenny, it's been so nice talking today. But before I let you go, I have to ask you my question I always ask everybody and I'm sure I'm, I'm really interested to see what you're going to tell me what are you reading or watching at the moment uh, well reading for fun I would just finished this morning in fact I just finished uh, the luminaries by Eleanor Catton which I don't know if and I mean I feel a bit late to the party apparently came out about 10 years ago and completely passed me by and then someone said I should watch the ne- Netflix series and I was like no I'll read it first but that's amazing so it's the sort of 1860s novel it's got a bit of a murder mystery it's very complexly plotted different timelines and things but oh my goodness it's it's epic in every sense of the word absolutely loved every minute of it and almost to the point where i don't actually know what i can read next because it was just so absorbing (laughs) um and then i'm obviously got a bit of a 19th century thing going on because in terms of what i'm watching i'm watching 1899 oh that's just on netflix recently yeah yeah which i did not like the first 10 minutes of until i realized i could turn off the thing where because it's multilingual oh yes yeah to turn off the dubbing so that i could actually hear all the different accents and read it's the always subtitles. better yeah to hear it and how um, you find that was that's getting gripping at the moment is it oh my goodness it, I, I i'm just i'm obsessed by it. it's like it's like lost but way better <laughs> mm-hmm. now i have to ask you because although it's a later period i mean were you did you watch bridgerton I didn't see it oh, now, but yeah. I just, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> of course. yeah. Were, you, were you frustrated by it? I've been a historian and kind of having a fair bit of background knowledge on similar periods to that. Were you thinking, oh God, that dress is just all wrong? Or, or is it a case that they just went carte blanche and didn't really care and just kind of wanted to focus on the story? I got that yeah. impression. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think Bridget, the thing about Bridgerton is it's its, is it's, its own thing. That's yeah. like, I have a much bigger problem with things that are based on books written at the time where all the evidence is there to get it right people just make very different decisions exactly. it's like the difference between you know like the 2000 whatever it was emma which i thought was just fabulous and looked amazing and then something like the more recent persuasion which i don't know what the heck they were trying to do but that's a great novel and it, it's really hard to ruin <laughs> but but bridgerton i i loved i thought it was funny i thought it was tongue-in-cheek and I th- actually a lot of fashions are pretty good um some of them are not quite right but you know i yeah bridgerton's its own thing i i loved it I, I think it it's really... like, you know, it reminds me of like Dynasty or Dallas or something like that. Just, you know, yeah. they just put it in a different period and just enjoy that kind of mystique and the kind of cunning and the all the background stuff that goes on. Because, you know, it's had its criticism about the casting and so on being wrong. But God, you know, can we just get over that? I mean, it's not yeah. as if we don't know what the type of people were and what who they were. You know, we, we don't need to kind of reiterate in everything. There has to be a little bit of out, out, outflow, doesn't there? Absolutely. And also, I mean, you know, I think pe- sometimes people have very strict ideas about historical periods on very little information you know i grew up thinking the victorian period was all about you know piano piano legs had to be dressed up because they were seen as too erotic yeah. and then i you know it's nonsense you know we all have these very pigeonholed ideas about periods there's so much of the of my 18th century i guess the 18th century i see in something like bridgerton i guess and anything that draws people in and gets people interested in this period for me is just it's just huge because um i feel like it's this 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 wonderful this wonderful period of history this wonderful time um, 
written with contradictions and things that aren't quite so nice too but nonetheless that we should we should all know about we should, and we could all get really interested in yeah i was i was quite interested in taboo i got to it very late and um, i watched it on on you know netflix and only recently and i thought it was brilliant if if though it yeah. just it, it the, the you know the scruffiness of it was really appealing to me because you know any period that they tend to cover around similar to that they're always so clean whereas taboo kind of addressed that and said no no they're not yeah, going no. to be clean and that's that's the muck of it you know it was really appealed to me i thought it was quite authentic i don't know what you thought that I, I, I love Taboo. I really, re- I mean, I read at some point they were going to do another series, so I really hope Apparently, they do. Yeah. It's, it's, a, I mean, it's a hard watch in lots it of ways. Is, yeah. I think it's, 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 it's really gritty. But yeah, I mean, this sort of sanitized version of, of, of the past. I mean, you know, yes, there were, th- th- you know, there were, there were um, aspects of the life which were like a Jane Austen novel, but you know, there were, other, there were, <laughs> there were other parts of life at the time which were, which were really not very like that at all and London was totally overpopulated as were most cities and there were there was extraordinary poverty in 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 parts of the city and some really 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 insanitary living conditions and yeah that's not a side of the that's not a side of the of the period that we often see but no I love to be I think it's I, I, I really hope they make another series of that yeah apparently 2024 is going to be okay. so and so it's set like five ten years afterwards so it should be interesting Tom Hardy was amazing in that I thought he just yeah, suited he was, the period yeah. of time didn't say much but he didn't have to say much you know? <laughs> no he did a lot of glaring didn't he a lot yes, of, yes, of meaningful uh, looks <laughs> yeah and the whole portrayal of kind of the, the, the way women were so strong in terms of how they try to um, break away from the from the standard sort of way of living that they had to be succumbing to was brilliant. Yeah. And, you know, the hardships that women faced as well, the, the type of things that they had to do to get by on a daily basis. I mean, it really I thought it really captured that and it really had had me going to the books afterwards to find out more about that period of time, because, as you say, it tends to get phased over a little bit. Yeah, Jenny thanks for taking the time to talk to me today I hope that we can open a few um, books now for people after this people start reading about the ladies magazine and stuff like that and, and we can uh, we can get a few eyes back in books again yeah I hope so too thank you so much quickly Jenny before I let you go um, what's the best way to find out more about the work you do do you have a website I do it's jennybachelor.net so uh, it's Jenny with an IE I have to say yep um, I blame my parents for that. Um, so yeah, you can find out about me there, or I work at the University of Kent. I have a website. I have a web presence there as well, and lots of links so that people can get on and find find other stuff. But the website's probably the best place to go. Brilliant, brilliant. We'll put that in the show notes. Jenny, thanks again, and thanks to all of you out there for listening to today's comfortable spot. My name is Ken Sweeney, and I'll see you all very soon. So take care, y'all. Bye bye. Mm-hmm.